0: let me read a couple of scriptures to you. Remember, growing up, the preacher said, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. You guys have your Bibles? Well, shame on you. <laughs> Isaiah, the ninth chapter, we are used to putting them up on the screen around here, um, but these will be familiar passages to a lot of you. You grew up with these Christmas verses. Some of the first verses I actually memorized as a As a young person in church, Isaiah the ninth chapter, verses six and seven. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And the old silver tongued prophet, 735 years before Jesus, said, that he would also be called the Prince of Peace. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and his peace, of the increase, the growing evolution, the building process of his government. Of that peace, the prophet said, there will be no end. Once it gets started, there's no stopping it. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, There will be no end to this to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then from the second chapter of Luke, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were greatly afraid then the angel said to them do not be afraid you don't have to be afraid for behold I bring good tidings of great joy which will be to all people for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be the sign to you you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men shalom peace union rest from the hebrew root of peace is a sense of ultimate completeness a completeness that in the minds of the prophets came from a sense of conviction that there is right a sense of conviction that there is good and ultimately a sense of conviction that this good this right is an arc in the universe as the wise man said that ultimately bends toward justice and completion Peace for the Hebrew prophet was the sense that there is a rightness that will ultimately and completely and eternally prevail. Thousands of years ago, I suppose, 27-some centuries ago, the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, my favorite of the Hebrew prophets, he dreamed of a peaceable world. He dreamed of a world where metaphorically a lion would lie down beside a lamb. He dreamed of a world where children would play and venomous serpents would not offend or harm them. He dreamed of a world where swords would be beaten into plowshares. War would be replaced with economy and an agrarian society verdant and productive. He dreamed of a world where, if you read his picture of what we've called the millennial he dreamed of a world where war would be no more. And ever since that time, in the hearts of the Jewish people, in the hearts of derivatives of those people like us, Christian people, ever since that time, no matter how dark the sky, no matter how bloody the battlefield, um, in spite of our Syrias, our North Koreas, our North Irelands, our West Banks, our Darfur's. In spite of all of these things, we carry within the Judeo-Christian faith the hope rooted in this vision of a world made right. We cling to the hope of a better world. We, We cling to the hope of a world where internal and external struggles, where internal and external forms of violence will ultimately cease. To the Hebrew people, they referred to this as the kingdom of God. That phrase for a lot of people has fallen on hard times because kingdoms are perhaps lower, less advanced forms of nation states and bad things happen within kingdoms. But um, I don't think we have to overdo metaphors and sometimes to overdo metaphors literally is to miss the poetry and the beauty. By kingdom of God, they simply meant what a lot of us refer to as the beloved community. A beloved community where Where joy and love and peace and equanimity and fairness and goodness will prevail. Not just prevail, but where these things will preside. The Hebrew people believed, and Jesus certainly came as a rabbi from that community teaching the same thing, that until the completeness of that community is formed, we are individually called to be embassies. You know what an embassy is in a foreign land, sometimes even on hostile soil. If you can just get to the embassy, thousands of miles from home, you are actually on your own territory when you make it into an embassy. And the Hebrew prophets, and especially Jesus, taught this, that until the kingdom fully comes, we can be outposts. We can be not just emissaries, but we can be embassies. We can be the name of the Lord that's a strong tower that the righteous run into and are safe. Have you ever thought about that? You, the embassy you the named one you the name of the lord that people run into and find safety there our lives our families our communities our churches literally can be havens that when people cross the threshold there is a sense of relief and respite that here the peace that we long for all is at least in fraction held here But the thing about peace is, peace is never satisfied with partiality. Peace is never satisfied with infrequent emissaries and embassies located fractionally in areas of incivility and hostility. Peace is never satisfied with partiality. If there is such a thing as peace, peace is not satisfied until peace pervades for everyone. As my favorite author, Frederick Buechner, beautifully said, there can be no full peace for anyone until there is true peace for everyone. Think about that for a minute. If we are called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, then as long as there is, as long as there is weeping, there can be no true peace for any of us. As long as there's are starving people we are called to rejoice in the middle of the weeping but as long as there are starving people the taste of our food should be should be forever to some degree mitigated with the awareness that others are lacking what we have not completely ruined but there can be no true peace for anyone until there's true peace for everyone the picture of the jewish god The picture that Jesus even conveyed was of a shepherd who was never satisfied with partiality. 99 in the fold was not enough. If there was one outside the fold, if there was one person hurting, there was never satisfaction. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that shepherd would leave the 99 and go searching all through the night. The kingdom of God, Jesus said, was like that woman who had ten coins and when she lost one, she didn't say, well, these things happen. But she left the nine secure and she went sweeping the entire house without satisfaction until there was full resolve of that which was hers. There is no true peace and full peace for anyone until there's true peace for everyone. Rabbi Kenneth Cohen, an incredible writer and thinker, made this statement that I think is so profound about peace. He said, peace means even more than the end of wars and conflicts. Peace is not just a cessation, an end of violence. Peace is not simply a vacuum, more than the absence of bad. Peace is the presence of something very good. Peace doesn't only defeat strife, it corrects it. Peace transforms strife. Peace does more than put aside anger. Peace does more than diminish hurt and resentment. People who find peace do more than lay these things down, he said. The people who lay these things of unpeace down end up picking up friendship and contentment, security, health, prosperity, abundance, trans- tranquility, and harmony. He concluded, darkness may be the absence of light, but peace is not the cessation of hostilities. Treaties may be signed, ambassadors exchanged, and armies sent home, but there still may not be peace. Peace is metaphysical. Peace is cosmic in its implications. Peace is more than the absence of war. Peace is, in fact, not the absence of anything, but rather the ultimate affirmation of what can be. Wow. Bottom line is, I could stand up here all day long or sit up here all day long and give you technical definitions and poetic explanations of peace, and they would matter little. The bottom line is to grasp the meaning of peace, we must experience it and we must experience it as a practical reality, not just an abstract that sounds good on a Sunday morning to pontificate about. But to grasp the meaning of peace, we have to experience it practically. Not just in our churches, but in our homes. Not just in our homes and relationships, but in our own heart. In our everyday lives, peace has to be received. It has to be enjoyed. It has to be shared. If the world's most powerful countries today transported their entire arsenals, if somehow the UN came to this prodigious success of getting the iraqs and the north koreas and the united states and the russias of this world just to take all of our weapons and transport them to mars the bottom line is our problems wouldn't be solved because the roots of war and violence do not exist in inanimate objects they do not exist in pieces of metals that can explode the roots of war and violence the roots of abuse and injustice If all of our weapons were transported to Mars, the violence would still be here. And if it existed still in our hearts, sooner or later the unresolved and untransported fears and prejudices and ignorance that exist inside of us. Yes, these things are manufactured. Yes, these things are manifest in our bombs. But the root of these things is in our heart. And we cannot transport our hearts to Mars. We are left with our hearts to deal with. That's why Jesus' brother, James, in the fourth chapter of his epistle said, from whence come wars, from whence come strivings, from whence comes conflict, James said. And automatically we want to point to countries and leaders, potentates and dictators. But the brother of Jesus said, from whence come wars and strivings? Come they not from our own members? In other words, do they not come from our own heart? This brother of the one who said, if somebody asks you to walk a mile, walk a second mile with them. If, if, they, if they slap your cheek, turn to them the second cheek. Blessed, he said, are those who, who don't pray for peace, but they make peace. Blessed are peacemakers blessed are people who realize that peace has to be chosen and it has to be manufactured as surely as bombs are manufactured peace has to be manufactured and it begins James said in the hearts of men and women just like you and me war and violence injustice inequity all of these things they have to be uprooted first Not in society, but first in our hearts. That's why I love uh, a a writer and a, a speaker, a great spiritual guide, a lady by the name of Byron Katie. I was reminded something that Byron said to Oprah many years ago, Oprah was talking to her. They were having a conversation on television and on Oprah's show and Oprah was talking about the work that she did for young people, especially young girls in South Africa. And Oprah kept referring to this as a fight. Fire, finally byron with great great wisdom and appreciation for what oprah has done for so many looked at her and said is there any way we could change that word is there any way that we could look at what you're doing as something other than a fight is there the possibility that in our attempts to combat in our attempts to undo that we're reaching for water cans to throw on the fire and we're actually grabbing gas cans of our own unsettledness projecting our own internal struggles and fights is it is it really love that drives us to the front line? is it really is it really the desire for peace that causes me to stand up for the oppressed well, Byron said the answer to that question lies especially in how You come to that place. If you come to that place as a battleground, as a fight, make sure that that fight is not first the fight that's being waged inside of your own heart. Be sure that you're not bringing gas and fuel to a fire with your own anger. If we're at odds with our parents and our spouses our families our society our church there's probably a good chance that we're at odds with ourselves to some degree the reality is there are many battle lines in this world and I am all about making my way to the place where love is not prevailing and justice is not being served but the reality is often we will find the battle line runs right through the center of our own heart long before it runs through the center of our countries and our governments the work of peace does not begin outside of ourselves oh, for unto us a child is born a son is given and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father and a prince of peace the work of peace begins with brave people recognizing that the first wars and the first fights that need to be resolved are inside of our own souls. People who return to themselves and allow God to speak peace to the troubled waters of their own soul before they take their life to a work outside of themselves i think it was socrates that said years ago as he watched a man leave the problem with that man is he takes himself with him wherever he goes a a fellow who believed that from whence come wars well obviously it's circumstances and people and all these things around me and if i can just get away from them the problem with that man is he takes himself with him wherever he goes The work of peace begins with brave people like Johann Christian Arnold. In the last half of the 20th century and the first years of the 21st century, there has been no more profound and prolific social activist than Johann Christopher Arnold. Arnold is besought and besieged with people continually making their way to him to become a part of his his work to spread peace. Around this world, Arnold, when he first receives young people to his cause, he said he fully expects or they always fully expect him to begin to instruct them and enlighten them on the ways to do activism, the ways to combat and to work in the face of injustice. But Arnold said he always sits with these young people. And he reads from this script, and I'll read a portion of it. Nothing is more vital or painful as recognizing the unpeace in our own lives and hearts. For until you are willing and ready... To recognize the wars, the rumors of wars, and the strife within your own heart, you will be of no service to those underserved, marginalized, and besought that you seek to help. Nothing is more vital in this world or painful or scary as recognizing the unpeace in your own life, your own heart. For some of you, he says, it may be hatred or resentment... Today, you believe that you're rushing into a fight. It may be that you're rushing away from a family. Today, you feel that you're being called to the front lines. Be careful that you are not ignoring the work yet to be done in your own young hearts. Whether that is hatred, resentment, deceit, dividedness, or confusion, or whether that is simply emptiness or depression, Do not use these people that you choose to serve to distract yourself from your own work. In the deepest sense, until you have resolved the violence within, you will be of no help to those who are enduring violence without. Are you ready today to not join me on the front lines of this world, but to join me on the front lines of your soul and to face there and overcome there the war in your own heart. I'm reminded of the folk singer Phil Oakes, who was a, was a leading peace activist back in the 60s, and Mitch Schneider, a lot of you know those names. Uh, those guys founded the Center for Creative Nonviolence, and they were major advocates all over this world, especially. They, they did more for the homeless in America in those years than, than perhaps any agency that our government has ever created. Phil said this, he said, it's always a temptation to fight with others and avoid our own internal work. It is so easy to be appalled by others and front page stories. It is so easy to be aghast at the world around us and to be filled with a righteous zeal. But the reality is much of this is simply diversionary tactics to keep us from facing our own. Zealots first must ask themselves honest questions. It seems that when you're not at peace for yourself, you'll have a hard time coping with blank spaces, either visually, auditorially, or physically. Nothing to watch or read, nothing to listen to or hear, nothing. Nothing to do. The inability to do anything. You try to keep yourself distracted from the trouble inside, pain, conflicting goals, fear, accusations, and a bad conscience, whatever. But you only become more flustered. However much you avoid blank spaces, you can find a blessing in them if you will accept them and use them for your own soul's good. Join us now in facing the turmoil in our world. But first, face the inner turmoil in your own heart. This is hard. But can ready you for the gift of peace. For until you have peace of your own, you have no peace to give others. Peace... As we rest in the wake of an election that has divided our country and broken hearts and at the same time thrilled others. As we just come from Thanksgiving dinners that we wrestled with the tension that still exists around the pain of politics and religion. As we as a church and as individuals seek to make a difference in the world and concern ourselves with everything from 1.2 million refugees in Lebanon out of Syria As we seek to wrestle with these issues all about us as we fear for justices that are going to be appointed and Decades of work that could be undone Yeah, I have those fears I hear again From a little hillside two millennia ago peace on earth spoken over a baby whose life immediately as the story goes created an infanticide by the time he was 18 months to two years old the mothers in bethlehem lifted their voices and wailed because a despot named herod in an effort to root out jesus the form of The new form of a Moses who was put in the little raft to escape the hand of Pharaoh. Jesus, the new Moses. His life caused the death of hundreds, perhaps, of little boys. And lamentation, the prophet said, was raised in Bethlehem. This one who was besought and besieged and ultimately crucified. And yet angels said... Goodwill and joy would come to this world and that peace would come because of his presence <laughs> It Reminds me of a story I, I, I wrote down a few days ago. Let me see if I can find it The old story of a king who offered a prize to an artist who would paint the best picture of peace Artist after artist tried and after looking at all the pictures The king came down to the two pictures of peace that he liked the best one picture was of a calm lake surrounded by a verdant towering mountain or a series of mountains capped with snow. Overhead was a blue sky with fluffy white clouds, lake calm waters, a serene picture. The other picture had mountains as well, but these mountains were rugged and bare and above was an angry sky from which rain fell and which lightning flashed and down the side of a mountain tumbled a foaming waterfall. On the surface, the latter picture didn't look peaceful at all, but when the king looked closely, he saw behind the waterfall, beneath those rugged, bare mountains, underneath that looming sky, he saw a tiny bird growing out of a crack in the steep rock wall. And in the bush, a mother bird, or a tiny bush was growing out of the crack, and in that bush, a mother bird had built her nest and had a few eggs. And in the midst of the torrent of raging water, sat a mother bird in repose and perfect peace. And of course, this final picture was the king's choice because as he explained in the old tale, peace does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble or hard work. Peace means to be in the midst of these very things and to still be calm in your heart. And I long, Carol, you spent your life working as an activist. I think about Lee Anglin who 50 years ago was marching on the front lines when it wasn't cool to march on the front line. We have elders here that have led the way in this for years and we have many young, vibrant people who are looking to join those fights. Or is there a better term? Is there a better way forward? Is there something stronger um, than fighting hate with hate and loudness with loudness? Is there something better than fighting fights with fights? I, I, I don't know, I don't know all of the answers to this, but in this season of Advent, on this second Sunday, when we lit a candle that was supposed to embody peace, and I looked at that flickering flame, I want us to do our work and I want us to do good work. I want us to do hard work. If that means marching, if that means jail, I, I, I'm sure it means all of those things. But I, I don't want us to work for external peace at the expense of our own peace. And as a matter of fact, I don't think the two have to be contradictory. I just want us to make sure in this season, governed and led by this one called the Prince of Peace, that we remember that he did not go violently into the night he was a lion and he was a lamb for sure but when he faced the grave injustice of this world he chose a method that many have not chosen but people like Gandhi and King have been transformed by he, he chose this one who was the marauding lion of Judah, he chose to go as a lamb. He chose nonviolence. And I just want us to be careful that we recognize nonviolence is not simply a placid external that belies the reality of troubled waters, but nonviolence is a nonviolence that applies all the way to the depth of our soul. That as we exude nonviolence and as we make peace and as we give grace, that down inside of our hearts, underneath the waterfalls and the looming clouds and the rugged mountains of injustice and pain and suffering and a world so far from right, that we hear the text to be angry, yes, but to sin not. And we recognize that there is an anger that does not have to destroy us and eat us from the inside out There's an anger That can lead us not to sin but to righteousness An anger that does not have to be contradictory to peace One of the most amazing things to me about Jesus is that he could sleep at all And yet he slept well it seems He sent the crowds away at times. He found his way in repose from the crowds to his own place of stillness. On his way to his own battlefront, he wrapped himself in a towel and he washed gently the feet of his betrayer. Gandhi said, I learned that before I was capable of truly hating, effectively, injustice, tyranny, lust, and greed, I first had to hate these things in myself. And I had to find resolve there. I believe we have to have peace before we can share it. And no, I'm not saying peace is simply a passive tranquility. I do believe that it is active blessed are the peacemakers blessed are those who make peace not war and i think jesus taught us in gandhi and people like king after them and certainly Johann christopher arnold in our generation i'll quote kenneth cohen to bring this to a resolve an individual can march for peace or vote for peace and can have perhaps some small influence on global concerns. But the same small individual has the potential to be an incredible giant if they will begin, if they will begin first to be this in the eyes of a small child at home. If peace is to be built anywhere, it must start within the human heart move to the home and to the family, to friends, brick by brick, this peace can finally expand to the world around us. Am I a peacemaker? Well, I wonder about that because all of us create an atmosphere around ourselves. I have for many years, um, coming from a... A ministry background and being a pastor, it was many, many years before I finally realized that my furrowed brow and my seriousness and then the gravity of my calling in some people 's mind made me an intimidating person to people. The sad thing is, I used to like that. How small do you have to be? How insecure do you have to be to enjoy intimidation and long shadows? Oh, that we might all recognize, and and I have hopefully, and you recognize it, long since repented of that silliness. but it it occurs to me that we all create an atmosphere around ourselves. Listening to Deepak Chopra the other night from a medical perspective and a science perspective, verifying what people like Jesus and others have been talking about for years, and that is that we have an energy that emits from us and it is palpable and it influences and it impacts. On this side of the election, before Supreme Court justices are nominated and struggles in North Dakota are resolved, on this day as the candle of Advent flickers low, let us pause and let, let us ask ourselves, what atmosphere am I creating? Is it an atmosphere, what atmosphere does my 18 year old son feel in my presence? What? Is it an atmosphere of intimidation? Is it an atmosphere of dominance? Is it an atmosphere of insecurity? Or is it an atmosphere of love and warmth and acceptance? John said it was perfect love that cast out all fear. And I believe that is true of peace. One more thing that I would like to read before we go And I suppose the question before us today is, do we, within the walls of this church and within the walls of our own heart, as we seek to bring peace and justice to a world around us, may the Prince of Peace call us back to our own souls and ask ourselves, is there tranquility there, is there peace there? Or am I just looking for a fight to join? I remember I was in the inner city a few years ago working with a suburban church. I was talking to a young mother there, a 24-year-old young mother. Um, She had an 11-year-old child. I remember her. She was 24. She had an 11-year-old child, and she was struggling. She was going back to school. She was working jobs, and with all the All the strength and finances she could muster, it just was not working for her. And our suburban church was there on that particular weekend working. And I remember there was an offer made to her that I thought was an incredibly good offer from one of our people. And I remember, I don't remember the full exchange, but I remember she was dubious. And she was dubious. And when I questioned her about her doubt, She said, well, in order for that promise to be true, or something similar to this, in order for that promise to be true, this person is going to have to walk this out with me over the next three years until my schooling is done. And I said, well, I I think they're fully committed. She said, "I, I think they mean that today, but I'll never forget her words. She said, I have lived here my whole life watching people like you come here to relieve your burden of guilt. And she said, but I'm still here showing up because I'm hoping that one day someone will come here not to use us to make themselves feel better about themselves, but they will come here to help. Andy, I will never forget that. I didn't even get the full scope of what she was saying. Using people. Dorothy Day, the lady who created the great Catholic social workers movement in, in New York, she had the same throng of young people and people from another world coming to learn from her. And Dorothy was the one who spoke of the ungrateful poor brilliantly. And she said, Give only if you're a person for whom giving is its own reward. Oh, just stop a minute. Give only only if you're a person for whom giving is its own reward. give expecting nothing in return. People use us. And all I want to say today, and, and I'm not I, this is not perfectly clear, and, and maybe that's the best method because it will leave you with the consternation and angst of this, because this is not perfectly resolved and it's not resolvable by a message. But if you're going to join the bigger cause, I want you to join the bigger cause. I want us to be in the big causes. Just be very careful that you're not joining the external causes to escape an internal struggle, cause, and front. Be very careful that working for others is not a diversion for your own struggles as a mother, a father, or a spouse. Make sure that when you run to the front line of another war, that you are not escaping the most important front line you can face, and that is the front line of your own heart. And if we can ground into that and do that well, then these two things will not have to be antithetical. But they can work in concert. And peace can be made within and without. Just a reminder. I was gonna read something else, but I think that'll just about do. Sometime I'm like the little boy that was in fifth grade uh, talent contest and he was dancing and and he he won the prize. They actually gave him the blue ribbon and after he got the blue ribbon, he kept on dancing and uh, just kept on dancing. And finally the teacher said, Johnny, you can stop now. And he said, no, I really can't. She said, well, you can, you've won the blue ribbon. He said, I know. My mama taught me how to dance. She never taught me how to stop. And I learn how to preach, sometimes I don't learn how to stop because there's so much to say and so much to do. But may the peace of Christ dwell abundantly in your heart. And as the Apostle Paul said, may you let allow that peace to rule in your heart. You have to let it. And may God's peace be peace for the entire world. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's close our eyes and let's just sit with this for a minute. Sweet peace of God, be real for the dispossessed and the homeless. Sweet peace of God, resolve our wars. Resolve our pain, resolve our injustice. Sweet peace of God, do this starting within the globe of our own soul. And may that peace that is real for us be given and made real for others. May this week, in this season of Advent, may we experience it as a week of personal peace. May this be true in the name of the one called Prince of Peace. And all of God's people said, Amen. Now be good to one another go in the peace of Christ. God bless you. We'll see you again next week.